So like one of the taglines I have for the film is, is that educating girls is not about women versus men. It's about our past versus our future. So how do we as a society, whether it's in India, whether it's in England, whether it's in America, anywhere, look at the past, take and main, keep the things that are truly valuable and wonderful, but also reassess and think about things that maybe are not, not so helpful or have been troublesome. And equally, when we move towards the future and we think of progress, that we don't just blindly accept everything and anything just because it's new either. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhak Shukla speaks with Ravanal Chambers. Ravanal is the founder of the multi-award-winning Be Inspired Films, which focuses on stories that cross boundaries, challenge our thinking, and inspire change. His first feature documentary, Road for Vrindavan, was completed in January 2020 and will be released soon. Hope you enjoy it. So first and foremost, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, and I want to just ask, straight up, how does a young Irish lad land <laughs> up in India and become a Hindu monk? Very good question. <laughs> um, as a young boy, um, I grew up in Dublin in Ireland and I think possibly an element of it is my dad, uh, a year after I was born, um, got into macrobiotics, which essentially is veganism as we understand it now, you know, no sugar, no dairy, no meat and so on. Um, which was quite an extraordinary and individualistic thing to do at that time. And especially in Ireland. Um, so I, I guess we grew up and he also called me Ravenel, which is a name he saw. I have a film. So he was a very, Free thinker, I guess you could say. So we were brought up, I suppose, to be we my my family by, if you like, default would have been Protestant, but they they were agnostics. They didn't really. And I think it was quite honest in a way. They just said, we don't know. So therefore, we're going to not bring you up in a particular tradition. Um, they weren't exactly encouraging or discouraging. They were just very open. But I remember a very specific moment. I was about nine standing next to my mom and she was putting the clothes away, you know, after washing and everything. And I was grappling with this concept in my head and I was trying to say to my mom, so if I didn't exist, would all of this existed? And if it existed and I didn't exist, well, then what would it matter kind of thing? So this sort of ex existential kind of thing. Um, and so from a young age and then growing up through my teens and in my later teens, I, I was very much uh, deeply driven to try and understand and ask some of these bigger questions. Um, but as, a, as you mentioned, I, as a teenager, I was also, I grew up in the eighties. So I was like, I was a yuppie. I don't know if you remember yuppies, I you know, do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, big jackets, shoulder pads, uh, suits, you know, it was, um, oh yeah, yeah. The whole kind of, you know, Ferrari was that, you know, the, the idea of making success was to become a millionaire, have a fancy car, like all of that stuff. Right. And so there was a part of me that was also very attracted to that as well. Um, but I, uh, partway through my education in my school, we had a thing called a transition year mm -hmm. and it was quite unusual, to be honest. It was a year basically of personal development retreats, you know, self-expression, all this kind of thing. And I think in that year, I was probably about 15, 16, I kind of had a shift in my thinking and I thought, well, you know, I feel like maybe I want to do something that is a bit more, I say meaningful, I mean, obviously meaningful is subjective, but sure. something that could help other people as well. And, um, I really started looking and studying different philosophies and traditions and whatever. And, um, 
It's very funny. Um, a friend of mine, Stephen Byrne is his name. He was in school with me at 15. He said, I'm going to all the world uh, religions. You know, do you want to come with me to this one, the Harry Christian temple? And I said, why not? So I was on my way there to meet him in town. Three punks attacked me, you know, and um, beat me up, smashed the milkshake over my head. And so I was in a pretty miserable mood, as you can imagine. But we went anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I don't really remember much about the philosophy or the music or anything, but I did enjoy the vegetarian food a lot. But that was it. Like at that point, then I just carried on with my life. And very ironically, after I finished my degree in psychology, I was living in San Francisco for a month, just to, or sorry, for a couple of months after, you know, sort of summer job. Mm-hmm. And um, I went with that same friend. We fell out. So we were living in different parts of San Francisco mm-hmm. and we both got a flyer to attend this festival of chariots uh, oh. in, in, in Golden Gate Park. And um, so we both ended up at this uh, Rathiatra festival, which is a very ancient festival from Jagannath Puri in the east coast of India. Uh, and uh, it was on in San Francisco. And we, we both ended up there and bumped into each other again. So here we were again, like, you know, maybe six, seven years later. And when I got back to Ireland, I met a friend who was in a band who invited me to the Sunday feasts that they have at the temples. And I met um, a very important person in my, li- in my life, a sort of a senior monk who really inspired me to... I, I never planned to become a monk or, or move into the temple or anything like that, but he was just such a dynamic person and he was putting on festivals for the public, you know, in Africa and England and Ireland. And he offered me the chance to travel with him. And I just thought, I just, I just want to do that. And that was, and then I did that for seven years with him. <laughs> fantastic. So that was, fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that uh, I think you're maybe the second person I've spoken to where a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet was kind of the entry point to Mm. exploring. Maybe it just starts with, well, how am I connected with my other living beings or yeah. Right. Right. So, um, and I, you know, I'm lucky to live um, in, in the area of Philadelphia where the Rathyatra happens every year. So when we lived in the suburbs, I never had, I just could never make it in time for somebody, you know, I obviously was not prioritizing it, but um, just, you know, the last time it happened prior to COVID, I was able to literally walk outside my house and walk along. And it was just the coolest experience to be in Philadelphia, you know, the the birthplace (laughs) of America and singing Girtan and marching along <laughs> um, the the Yatra. So so that was a lot of fun. And they have a vegetarian food festival along yeah. with it. So uh, I, I think that's one of the beauties of the Ratyatra is, uh, you know, Lord Jagannath comes out into the streets, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't have to go anywhere. Like, you know, and if it goes past your front door, that's even better. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So I want to talk, um, actually, before we get to talking about Vrindavan, um, what other types of projects have you and Be Inspired Films been involved in? Yeah. So when I set up Be Inspired Films, uh, as you said, about 2009, I was very um, committed to the idea that we were only going to tell stories, amplify stories that were about um, social impact, you know, benefit to society, if you like. And thankfully, we've been able to stick to that all the way through and, and we're still going strong, which is which is wonderful. Um, some of the projects that really stand out, we have had a long time partnership with uh, TEDx events. Uh, so we've done, we're the partner for 
TEDx London, uh, which we just did TEDx London Women at the Abbey Road Studios, which is famous for the Beatles recording there. Right. Um, that was pretty awesome. And so that was a kind of a hybrid where we filmed it live in there and but everyone watched it online like it was broadcast online mm. we also did tedx at the royal albert hall which is in london is one of the well it's one of the world's famous venues an incredible venue um what else have we worked on recently we uh did a two-week uh produced a two-week online summit for gender smart investing summit mm. and it's quite awesome so you have all of these biggest organizations, you know, UBS, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, uh, and all of these world sort of development organizations looking at how are we deploying capital um, for impact, but also for return, sort of impact investing. And what was fascinating about it is, is that there's loads of opportunities. A lot of these uh, funds are actually delivering great returns, but they're also first of all, not causing problems, but they're actually improving people's lives. Um, and so I like that crossover. I really yeah. like the crossover where it's not used to be, you know, business was business, charity was charity. Now we're seeing all these kind of exciting, I guess it's happening the world over. We're sort of trying to be more holistic, I suppose, in the way that right. we do things. And we're trying to help people who are doing that to tell their stories. Yeah. It's very much, um, I see it as Dharma kind of coming to fruition, right? This, mm -hmm. um, understanding or recognition of the interconnectedness of things. Um, mm. So whether it's, so in, in some ways, you know, I think that I read that you wanted to be a stockbroker yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in many ways, even for you, it's bringing together these kind of maybe what would on, on their face appear to be disparate interests, but uh, really, you know, how we are, how our economies are working have a direct mm. impact on people. And especially um, for people in countries where the infrastructure is not yet up to date, oftentimes it's it's a legacy of colonialism uh, that so, yeah. has you know put them um, on the back foot. And so uh, it's good to see that sort of um, kind of recognition as well as it's not just recognizing it, but coming together and trying to find solutions so that you have investments and social responsibility and investments. Mm. So with Road to Vrindavan, mm. you know, the film focuses on your journey of exploration, as well mm. as the journey of several girls who yearn for education, but come from families that don't see education of girls as a priority. So what got you interested in the subject? Yeah, it's very interesting how it kind of came about. I I wish I could say that I went out seeking such a story, but it wasn't like that at all. I, um, a friend phoned me up one day and said, um, I'm organizing this, uh, 1800 kilometer tuk-tuk trip from Mumbai down the West coast of India to Kanyakumari. And would you like to come? And I said, I'd love to come. It sounds like such a great adventure. And then he said, we're doing it because we're trying to raise awareness and funds for this school, which is in Vrindavan and it's a girls school. And, um, I didn't really know. I knew of Rindavan because I'd actually lived there 20 years ago for a year. Um, but I didn't know a huge amount about, you know, the, the intricacies of why girls faced so many barriers often in accessing education. And I learned many other things as well. 
So I kind of, as you said, set out, uh, you know, and launched myself into this trip. And I thought I'll bring a film crew with me because I'd love to speak to people along the way and try and understand it from the ground up. You know, because in a, in a far in a country overseas, sometimes you know you see headlines or you see how it's reported this way or that way, but you don't really know for right. sure. You know, the, unless you speak to people, you know, who it affects. And so um, we went and did the trip, and it was. It was wonderful, if not exhausting and, and pretty scary at times <laughs> on the roads that we were on some uh, mountain roads where, you know, those roads were that weave back and forward like that at nighttime on these tuk-tuks in the rain. Uh, it was, it was pretty <laughs> treacherous. And, and anyone who's been in India knows that, you know, there's a funny line in the film actually where the guy training us for the tuk-tuk says, we don't drive on the left of the road. We drive on what's left of the road. <laughs> and it was funny because it's so true. Yeah. So like you're on your side of the road and I mean, luckily it works for the most part, but people are, you know, big trucks and stuff are coming on the wrong side of the road right towards you. And then they just get in at the last minute. So it's, it can be, if you're not used to it, it can be really uh, quite frightening, but so we made it and we, we managed to speak to, to quite a few people along the way, but especially we met some amazing girls at the school in Vrindavan and really their, their spirit, uh, to pursue their education and to, you know, imagine what could be possible for them was, in, was incredible. It was, you see it in the films. It's just some amazing girls. So I got back to England and I put together a trailer and in my mind at that point, that was going to be the film. Mm. Um, and I put it out and, you know, largely speaking, people were incredibly uh, inspired and encouraging, but I had a criticism and it was, um, why are you doing this as a man? Mm. And I, if I'm very honest, it, it really stopped me in my tracks at first because I just, I didn't really, it blindsided me, I guess. I didn't, I didn't see that it would be an issue. Um, but then I started to think about, uh, and I started to speak to people around the world who are working in international development and particularly in education with girls. And I said, surely this kind of divisive thinking is part of the problem that Absolutely. keeps us away from each other or keeps, oh, that's a women's issue or, or that's a someone else's issue. And actually we don't dialogue and we don't cross these invisible divides. Mm -hmm. Um, and in a way then the solutions are weaker because they're not joined up and they're not including. So like, for example, what we saw so many times was that the girls of course are so keen to have the opportunity for their education, but if the community around them is not supportive of that, and obviously that involves men and also women who are sort of buy into the patriarchal structures, then um, it's really difficult for those girls to progress. And it's funny that you say uh, you were introduced to me through Shika because it was Shika, uh, a conversation that I had with her and something that she said to me that just blew my mind. She said, and obviously for people who don't know, so Shiku was the number one um, professional tennis player of all of India. And, you know, she's achieved amazing things. And even she lives in, in America and has lived in America, but she's also faced challenges because she's a woman kind of stepping up into that sort of leadership roles and stuff. And so she said to me, if you, uh, you can sometimes empower someone into isolation. And I thought, Wow. So if you're uh, helping whatever in this particular case, like say girls in a rural situation and you're opening up their mind and their understanding of the world and their aspirations, but you then don't help the, the men and the other people in the community to change their thinking as well. In a way, that girl is almost in a worse situation because she's still in the same situation and kind of potentially you could say a bit trapped in that situation, but her, she does, now she knows better in a way. 
So it's, it's a very difficult situation. So then I started to become inspired to go back to India and spend a lot more time this time, not to a set route and go and spend time with families and talk to fathers and brothers and organizations working with boys as well to try and help tackle this situation. And that's, I suppose, really when, so in a way that criticism was a blessing, you know, it didn't seem at first, it didn't seem like it, but then it, then, uh, then it was, and uh, it really helped me to go, well, made me need to go deeper to really look at it. And I think some, uh, something valuable was uncovered as a result. Um, and I think the film now sort of talks about both aspects and I'm really excited about getting it out because in the world of development, I, I feel like it's almost like one of the missing pieces of the jigsaw yes. that in and of itself may not be a huge part, but it's an important part to help complete the picture. Right. No, that it really resonates. One of the projects that's um, near and dear to my heart at HAF is the Shakti Initiative. Mm. And it's essentially a clearinghouse of stories for and by women of, of teachings and this concept of Shakti in the Hindu tradition. But one of the things that when you look at, um, you know, various movements throughout history in which uh, people are looking at our women, um, being allowed to live to their fullest potential. It's mm. very often been men at the forefront who highlight those issues. And so what I, what I find kind of frustrating in, in you know, Western feminist circles is that mm. it becomes too much of an either or conversation that if we're going to advocate for girls and women, then men and boys have to be the root cause um, or, or the, the root evil or the bad guys, the obstacle or the baggage and vice versa. Right. That, um, Mm. that if we're, um, if men and boys are not doing well, somehow it's because women, um, are the problem. And Mm. if you look to how Dharma or the concept of Dharma plays into, or what the worldview is, it's, showing a path forward in which both the feminine and masculine principles are in balance. And I, I also had, I actually had a question for you about what Shika had said. So you kind of jumped. I'm glad that you brought it up because that really resonated uh, that Mm. if, if you educate girls, especially in these rural parts of, of India, and I think you could actually say that of any rural area, any part of the world, oh, 100%. That, you know, where if, if women are educated and the men are not, you're going to create not, I don't even want to say it's an imbalance, but, uh, you're going to insert a language, one language for one person and the other person doesn't speak it. So mm. you affect the way people communicate with one another. And we can't, if we can't communicate with one another, how are we going mm. to understand one another? And, and I think forward? that's, I think that's massively important and it's something that I want, um, you know, one of the things that I would love to see from the film is having deep, meaningful, honest conversations because without um, understanding, first of all, I guess the will to want to understand and then um, seeking to understand and have dialogue that's, that's also feels, it might feel uncomfortable, but to try and create an environment where it's safe, you know, that um, it's okay for men to, to be involved in this conversation and it's okay for them to, to try and create an environment where they feel like that they can come in and discuss without, as you say, being made to feel like 
they're the bad guy or whatever. Um, and equally, so like one of the taglines I have for the film is, is that educating girls is not about women versus men. It's about our past versus our future. So it's not about one or the other. It's not about um, favoritism. It's about looking at our society and seeing where collectively, where do we, and it's, it's a funny, another thing we talked about is the, the sort of collision between tradition and progress. So how do we as a society, whether it's in India, whether it's in England, whether it's in America, anywhere, look at the past, take and main, keep the things that are truly valuable and wonderful, but also reassess and think about things that maybe are not, not so helpful or have been troublesome. And equally, when we move towards the future and we think of progress, that we don't just blindly accept everything and anything just because it's new either. But so it requires, it's nuanced. Right. Um, and we like to think in binary, you know, it's either right or wrong, or it's <laughs> good or bad, or it's whatever. Um, and it's sort of, that makes it easier for people. <laughs> but in reality, uh, and especially when you look at tradition and culture, and especially when it gets mixed in with religion and stuff, People find it very difficult to mm, have the, I guess, discrimination to be able to look at certain things and say, there's a principle behind that, but the way that it's played out is troublesome and it needs, it's like an upgrade. Right. It's not necessarily even that you're changing it, but it needs to maybe be reapplied in a different way. And especially as you say, when respect uh, and empathy and kindness for any class of person, whether it's like the caste idea or whether it's women or whoever, is that really part of Dharma? Is that really like, or is that some kind of baggage that's happened along the way or, you know, and so I think being able to honestly look at that um, and talk about it. So it's non-politicized and it's non sort of not too emotionally charged is incredibly important. I think if we want to progress as a society, like all of us, Absolutely. And, you know, I was going to, I also remarked, I guess, that um, that kind of countering between tradition and modernity. And oftentimes, I think with modernity, there's an assumption that modern is good and tradition is bad. Uh, But let's look at something like the environment. Well, some of our traditional practices are far less depleting. Um, and far more uh, cognizant of our interconnectedness than you'd say, like modern day factory farming. A hundred percent. Modern 100%. Uh, farming practices. So how do we, what, did you see any kind of successful examples of mm. grappling with that, that, you know, maybe this, this is what we understand to be our tradition, mm. but this is the actions that we're taking now uh, may not seem traditional, but somehow are supporting some sort of core truth or core value. Did you see any of that happening? Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing that springs to mind is we, we visited um, Barefoot College, which is in uh, Rajasthan, Tolonia, and they're doing some very interesting work uh, around livelihoods about uh, essentially trying to create localized livelihoods so that people from rural spaces are not having to go to cities just for earning and then being completely displaced and, you know, not having community and family and all of that, but also around gender sensitization. So it's something that I've been quite aware of myself. I mean, in my twenties, you mentioned I spent time as a monk. Mm -hmm. So 
for anyone who's kind of familiar with the tradition, I mean, uh, they, they call it brahmacharya. So like you're, you're properly committed 24 seven to a life of service and you're trying to develop a devotional way. Of, I mean, you're very active in the world. It wasn't like going away and living in a monastery or anything, but the, the whole focus is that you're doing it, uh, everything as an act of, I guess, devotion and trying to f- see that connection with the Supreme, but also, um, you're, you're celibate. So, I think that, um, from that experience, I realized that, and at the end of it, I realized that, you know, this was amazing kind of training, if you like, and in the Vedic system, funnily enough at 25, it is seen as a training and you would, most people would get married. Um, but you know, I took it up at 21 and you're young and enthusiastic and you say, I'm going to do this forever. <laughs> but my, my kind of body clock, I guess, came at around 29 sort of said, you know what? you're, you're not cut out to do this forever. Um, and so I realized, you know, I, I would be better for me to get married and so on. And I did. Um, but I guess I realized something and it's kind of summed up in this story a little bit. Uh, there's two monks walking along the river and they come to the crossing and there's a, 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 a lady there and she says, can you take me across? And one of them says, yeah. And he picks her up on his shoulder, carries her across and then says goodbye. And then they walk on. And after a while, one monk says to the other monk, I can't believe you touched that woman. You're a monk. You know, you're not supposed to have any contact with women. And he said, well, I carried her across the river, but you're still carrying her. Right. I love <laughs> so that story. <laughs> yeah. So it's this idea that um, like attachment and aversion are two sides to the same coin. That's right. And actually having uh, a balanced, respectful uh, relationship with women as a man is, is actually incredibly important for all of us, uh, you know, to have these respectful relationships. And I think sometimes in society, unfortunately, it's been uh, on the polarized sides, you know, women are just objects of desire or they're something else or whatever, but this kind of middle healthy relationships is, you know, you don't, it's not as often as you'd like to see it, I suppose. Um, and so in this school, I had a hunch. Now, this is a good example. Um, Traditionally, there was this idea uh, of keeping boys and girls away from each other, mm-hmm. very much separated. And the principle behind it, I guess, is, you know, you don't want them to be mixing too much or get into trouble or whatever. And a large part of that is tied to reputation and what happens if something happens and then sure. it'll be terrible for the family name and or so many complicated things are part of it. But I felt like in a way, if if boys and girls were able to mix together, not like, you know, in foolish ways, but like just in a healthy way as they grow up and learn about each other and be more familiar with and understand each other and appreciate each other, then I felt like that potentially would lead to better relationships between men and women. And so in this school in uh, Barefoot College, they're doing that. So they have uh, boys and girls together and then they talk about in so many spaces, whether it's in the eating place or in the dramas or in the education they, they work together and they come up to learn and understand each other. Um, Hmm. and I suppose it's difficult, isn't it? In India, there's a huge amount of terrible. We hear, I mean, so many examples of rape and so many terrible things. And so, but if you think about it, like on one hand, they have the whole modern push, they're seeing stuff on the internet and everything, but you have these boys, they're 12, 13, 14, whatever age they are. And a girl is like this alien thing that they're kept away from. And, and, and then, you know, maybe then it, it all just comes out in these strange ways, you know, and, and I, I just feel like, um, so that's an, an example of where something very traditional, I'm sure there was good reason for it, but I think now it, it, it 
sometimes could be counterproductive. Right, right. No, and there's there are so many mixed messages uh, for for boys and girls with you know throwing Bollywood into the mix and oh, pop yeah. culture and all of these things, um, and and also I feel what women sometimes um, the way that the industry oftentimes objectifies women and that objectification somehow getting wrapped up also into well it's my right to do what I want or, or whatever. So it's complicated, right? Very complicated. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, yeah. That actually, you know, talking about rights, one of the interviewees um, brought up a point that in India, there's a bigger focus on we versus I. I remember that lady. And, yeah. um, you know, so this is sometimes kind of spoken in terms of responsibilities versus rights. Or duty. So, or or yeah. duty. So hmm. what, I don't even know. I mean, it, it was a poignant point. Uh, what what was the did you push her on that a little bit more to understand what she meant by that? And where might we find mm. what, where might that question itself open up space for conversation? Yeah, it's a fascinating. So um, that lady, we met her at a um trying to remember, excuse me, remember the name of, uh, it was a very famous temple on the, as we went down the coast and it was a very old, you know, famous temple. And she, I was asking her about um, these topics and and she said, uh, Artie Ketrapal actually, who was a, 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 an actress, a Bollywood actress that was with us, who was on the trips, asked her, so do you think that girls should be educated? And she said, yes. Definitely. And she said, and then when they get married, should they be allowed to, you know, go out of the house and do things? And she said, I don't say that they should, but if they must, then they can. And I said, I said, well, what if they don't need to, but they want to, like they, they have interests, so they want to do things or whatever. She said, well, you know, that's where, you know, she has to think about her role as a mother or as a wife or, you know, very much in the positions of responsibility that she has. And I sort of asked her the question. I said, okay. I said, but who decides, like who decides these things? And so is it her? Is it the head of the family, the man, or is there even any dialogue allowed (laughs) in that space? And and, you know, so she said, well, there are very set roles for men. A man should be like this. A husband should be like this. A wife should be like this and so on and so on. And you know what? That system has, I guess you could argue, served the world for, for some time, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. a system that has worked. Um, but just because of that, um, does that mean we sh- it, it, every so often things can't progress or evolve? Um, and a funny thing is, is that I just came off the phone earlier today with a guy here in the UK who runs a PR company and he was telling me, he watched the film and he said, one of the things I find very fascinating is at the end of the film, towards the end of the film, your, your wife says that the irony of all of this is that in your own marriage, you have very gender stereotype right. roles. <laughs> and, and he said to me, I've been in lockdown here in the UK with my wife and, uh, you know, it's really difficult and I'm having so much more appreciation being at home, seeing all of the, what goes on. My wife works as well, but like the house and the kids and everything, and people are much more aware of these things. And he also said that, um, uh, I've had to kind of reevaluate my own thinking around these things, you know, and we've all had to share out the roles more. So I think, um, 
I think that my wife has often said to me, like she decided she was a teacher and she we had our two boys and she wanted to stay home and look after them. And then at a certain point you feel kind of claustrophobic. It's there's no, there's no break. Like it's awful on all the time. And then I think it's quite a typical story from here from women that they then want to sort of regain their identity in the world outside of just the family. Uh, some groups of women will look at women who are just moms as, right. you know, you're not kind of fulfilling your potential. You're just a housewife and that's from other women. And then, uh, and then other women are thinking, well, I want to stay home by choice and do this. And then, uh, there's a sort of a, like, if you're going out to work, you're not a good mom and this, it's just so, so complicated. And then if you're trying to work and be uh, a mom, then it's so much work. Right. So right. I don't think that there's any this is the beauty of these conversations. I don't think there's any right or wrong or simplistic, easy way to kind of go, this is it. I think I've come to the conclusion with my wife that, you know, you have to work it out between you as a family uh, together. But I think the main thing is, is that, is there a conversation there and is everybody getting to, to express their opinions fully? I think maybe there would have been a time where it got decided for you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think now, I think the biggest thing for me that I personally, that I saw that was valuable for education for girls in this context, but for anyone is it's not just earning more money and, you know, better jobs and stuff. I mean, that of course is a, is a benefit, but it's about having a sense of confidence in your own voice and belief that you have something to say that people will, will listen to you and that you have, um, um, you understand how things work better, that you're less likely to be cheated. You can say no to something because it's not, you know, so it gives you a greater sense of agency of your own life. For me, that I think was one of the things that I saw that was the most important personally. So in terms of, you know, certainly uh, traditional gender norms uh, have a, a huge role to play in terms of whether the education of girls is prioritized, but what were some of the other factors that you were um, mm. faced up against or that these girls were faced up against that they shared with you that yeah. um, might have inhibited their ability to continue education? Yeah. I mean, I think gender cuts across all of them, to be honest, but I think economic is one. So there was a girl, uh, Pushpa, in, in this rural village called Kochagaon, which is rural village outside of Nasik. And um, her, her family actually had a farm and they had been doing okay, but her father died. Uh, they couldn't maintain the farm as much as before. And so their uh, income went down a lot. So Pushpa couldn't continue her education, purely financial. She had to stay home and look after things and so on. And it was really sad because the irony of it was one of the rooms in her house, which was a fairly okay sized house was actually used by the school. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was heartbreaking. Um, so economics was one. So if there's not enough, um, people to look after the house, the default will fall on the, on the girls. Um, Another was fear of um, them getting involved with boys. I mean, that was massive. Hmm. So, you know, the idea that, and so again, it's very sad, but, you know, we, we, we spoke to um, Sonali and her father and um, 
Sinali's older, I think it was her older sister, or maybe younger sister, had committed suicide a year before. And it was her, the idea was that she, she, I think she was involved with a boy and she, it was found out and she, she killed herself. And it, um, so, th- so then Priyanka, one of the girls was telling us that, or I think it was Sonali, um, that there's no space for the girls to talk about these things. Right. It, you know, to their parents or to the, to the community. And so, you see, a very old fashioned thinking would be, and it was often the case, simple, just keep them in the house. <laughs> Solved, right? Yeah. Easy, it's done. And, and, you know, you can kind of understand how somebody might have come to that conclusion. Now, but I mean, surely, surely we have to try and do better than that. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, you know, and um, it's, I think it's mixed in with caste, you know, also because if, if the boy isn't from the right Same background or caste right. or religion or whatever, then of course that's troublesome. Part of it is the village context because the world is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're living in an American city or whatever, you could move to a different American city if you get married or you could whatever, you know, there's so much going on. But in this, in a smaller place, I mean, this is big news, right? It's, right. it's hard to kind of get away from it. So, um, what else was there? Um, again, yeah, that idea that it's, it's, it's a woman's role. Like, uh, the, interestingly, I even heard uh, as a monk, you know, that, um, women are less intelligent. Mm-hmm. Now, I, 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 now when I think about that, I mean, obviously def- intelligence can be defined in so many different ways, but I think that I don't agree with that, but even if, you know, someone was thinking like that, perhaps at a, in a time when women never got educated and were always at home and it wasn't, the opportunity was not given to them. And people I, maybe could, could think that right. because they, their potential was never explored in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I just think that there's a very, a, a very prevalent still old fashioned idea that, you know, uh, women, in a way, almost are not sort of people to fulfill anything in the world other than having children and looking after their family. And in a way that almost like that is a fulfilling life for, or should be fulfilling life. Um, and, um, I just, so I feel like anything outside of that, from a, from, from a community that feels that is, um, kind of seen as a waste of time, a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, to spend money on it and a waste of time. There are many risks associated with it. In any case, she's going to get married and then she, she won't be able to work anyway and whatever. So it's, 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 you know, people can talk about these things, but you have to put yourself in a girl's shoes and think what would it be like then, you know, if, 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 if these things are happening. And luckily for me, making the film helped me to do that through the people that I met and, um, and so on. And, um, and I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, your listeners will know better than me, but you know, it doesn't matter whether it's in England or, or, uh, Ireland or, or America, oftentimes in cu- cultures and communities where that type of thinking was there, um, marriage is a huge thing. And often it does, it doesn't matter where you live. It does change things because you go to a different family. Maybe they have different views on things. We, we interviewed one um, girl that it, the interview didn't get into the film, but she was, 
from a business family, you know, wealthy, um, very sort of, you would think on the face of it, progressive and everything. Um, she went to the UK to study, to be a journalist. Uh, she wanted to do that. And her father said to her, you do understand that if you go and do that, it will be harder for me to marry you because I'll have to find someone who's more educated than you. Um, and then she wanted to go back and do a master's. <laughs> and he said, that's going to make it even harder. And and the thing is, is, again, it's this thing that the man must be more educated. He must earn more and so on and so on. Um, and I'm not saying anything about that, like right or wrong, but it's just, I think we inherit these ideas and maybe they're, they need to be re-looked at <laughs> or at least talked about. Oftentimes, oftentimes it's, it's kind of the, the parents who are thinking from their life experience and, and frame of mind and the young people don't mm. necessarily care. They, they're going to work it out. Right. And, and yeah. I, and I think those things do resolve themselves out when people actually meet themselves meet one another on their own. Um, one thing that you, you brought up, um, just reminded me, um, several years ago, uh, there's a cardiologist. I think he's a cardiologist, Dr. Devi Shetty, um, Mm. who works, uh, I think maybe in Karnataka or one of the other Southern States. And he's essentially, uh, improved, um, access to quality healthcare, Um, through scale. Mm. And one of the things that he said that really struck, uh, I mean, struck me to a point where I still remember this, you know, this many years later was that when it came to hiring uh, certain um, like entry level positions or support staff, he actually, his hospital actually preferred hiring women Mm. because what they found was, especially from the socioeconomic strata that these women were coming from, they were where were oftentimes gambling, um, alcohol abuse and things like that might be common um, or at least widespread or, or a problem mm. that women had a greater tendency to take their earnings put away a little bit for keep it safe. Yeah. Make sure their children are fed and educated and education became kind of a a huge priority. So, so it's interesting that, you know, there's obviously no single story um, uh, about any, any culture. uh, Things are definitely changing. And I think that your film is going to go a long ways in um, really giving voice to those girls who are, who are still struggling. So uh, my last question for you, because we're hitting hitting an hour, uh, yeah. but what's next for you? Um, what's the plan for uh, Road to Vrindavan? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, we're um, we we finished the film sort of last year, but obviously COVID has hit the world in a, in in ways that we ca- couldn't have imagined, um, and actually, interestingly, unfortunately, has set back a lot of the progress that's been made with girls' education. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in many ways, I hope the film will hit at a good time in a way where the world is really going to need to rethink how do we, you know, progress these issues um, and maybe willing to look at it from some new angles. So we've been really, really lucky to get uh, selected for a couple of big film festivals. One in particular, uh, which I would love your listeners to to try and um, 
tune into to watch the film especially but also to to kind of um support us if they can is it's san luis obispo international film festival so it's obviously the www um slofilmfestival.org slofilmfestival.org and it's road to vrindavan film so that's uh, an american premiere you can only watch it in america um and it's um from march the 9th to the 14th but obviously they can check it out anytime now um and then across the whole of this year we're planning a uh, probably up to a hundred partnership screenings. So if people are out there and they feel like um, the film would be interesting to their organization or their community, or even their, um, uh, who, if they have an audience, then we'd love them to reach out and chat to us and look at organizing a, a, a partnership screening for your, for your audience. So that'll be, those are the best ways uh, for, for people to connect. And I, I think I said it to you at the beginning, it's, it's not, the film is like a match. I think of it like a match to light a fire. Um, and I, what would make me over the moon uh, if we could achieve with the film is, is that people in within themselves, within their families, within their communities, within their workplace, wherever their influence is, start to have deep and meaningful conversations about these issues. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.